So we're going to be in Psalm 23 this evening, Psalm 23, familiar text. So if you have a Bible turned there, you can follow along in the, in the bulletin. Does everybody remember the Lego movie? came out a couple years ago. Uh, remember the theme song? Everything is awesome, right? Everything is awesome. Here's some, some of the lyrics that I was reminded of this week. Have you heard the news? Everyone's talking. Life is good because everything is awesome. Stepped in mud, I got new brown shoes. It's awesome to win, it's awesome to lose. Everything is awesome. Is that a real picture of life? Maybe not most days, right? Everything is, is not always awesome. We, we face a lot of anxieties and fear and loss and pain and heartache and uh, depression and confusion and a whole lot of sin every single day. Everything is not awesome. And so we need comfort from God, and we need it a lot. And so we, we pray for it, but sometimes in the moment it can feel like our prayers are not as much prayers of supplications as they are prayers of applications for God to work. Right? Um, we, we say, Lord, would you come? Would you show up? Would you meet my need? Would you comfort me? And we try to posture ourselves in the right way. We try to put our best foot forward, Forward, try to do the right things. We try to say the right things before God, hoping He's going to come and come for us and come to our aid. But maybe the cynical side of ourselves say, well, maybe He's not going to show up just right now. Maybe it's going to be at some point in the distant future yet to be determined. Uh, and until that day comes, until I know whether He's going to comfort me or not comfort me, I need to do the kinds of things that would get his attention to incite some sort of response. Psalm 23 is not a prayer of petition for God to show up and work. It's a prayer of confidence. David is confident that the Lord is already at work in the lives of his people. Our, our main point tonight from the text is that you know we want God to show up and comfort us when we face Hardship and pain and, and difficulty in life. But God doesn't need to show up if he's already present with you. Let me pray for us and I'll read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, would you be with us, Lord? Uh, we know you are present here because we have gathered in your name, Lord Jesus. Would you comfort us? Would you teach us? Give us your wisdom from your word. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 23, Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God doesn't have to show up when he's already present with you. We've got three things you want to talk about tonight. The first is the presence of God's love, then the presence of his hand, and then the presence of his people. So we're going to start with the presence of his love. Um, not everyone who who has a vocation, loves their work. Maybe not every day. Maybe you love it sometimes. Um, for those that are 
financial advisors and accountants or engineers, you probably don't love your work every single day. If you're a teacher, you may not always love your students, right? I grew up in a family of teachers. Parents were teachers, grandparents were teachers. They still sometimes will say, I just don't love my class this year. Shepherds don't always love sheep. Um, if you're a shepherd back in David's day, this is typically a family business. Um, you didn't necessarily want to be a shepherd. You just are a shepherd. This is how you and your family survive. right? You buy sheep or you find sheep. You sell sheep. You breed sheep. You milk sheep. You shear sheep. You eat sheep. right? Sheep are there for your personal gain and survival. Maybe a nursery rhyme in their day would be Mary had a little lamb. Or Miriam, let's say, would have had a little lamb her fleece would, was white as snow and so they cut all off uh, off all the fleece so they could make warm clothes and then slaughtered it to survive the winter right this is what they did i know it's a sad picture um but but this is what they did they were for your selfish gain uh, sheep are stupid sheep will will run right into um their a predator and his territory because they're not brave, they're dumb. They will drown in a river trying to get a drink because they don't realize that there are rushing waters that's going to sweep them away. They're stupid. They get scared easily. They can't defend themselves. They're, they're very restless creatures. And yet the Lord in, in his word uses this imagery of his people as sheep all over the place. But I think that's very helpful for us because it does a couple of things. One, it gives us a very sobering picture of ourselves. And also, it comforts us that it gives us a wonderful picture of his care for us. It's a wonderful picture of his care. You know, this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 23, it, it portrays a normal practice uh, of God's love. It, it's so loving. God is so loving as, as, his, as our shepherd. Uh, just look at the first few verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There will be no lack ever. That's the sense that David gives. Where, where I was lacking, now God has provided abundance for me. He makes me to lie down in grassy meadows where there is rest and there's food and there's peace and there's safety. He leads me beside still waters. They're not stagnant waters where I'm going to drink from it and get sick. They're not hard, rushing Flowing waters where I'm going to be drowned away. My dumb self is going to be dragged away and, and drowned. But there's still waters and he stays with me. He re restores my soul. He brings back my life from, from death. And he leads me in tracks that are good and right. Paths that he has carved out just for me. So that if I wander, he will bring me back. When I stay in the way that he has carved out for me, I cannot be moved. This is a loving God. He's always leading his sheep to places of rest and joy and refreshment and peace. And it's unthinkable. I mean, David is a shepherd. He knows what shepherds are typically like. He knows definitely what sheep are like. But this portrays God as being a kind and loving caregiver whose love is unmatched. Why does God love us? Why does God love us? Does he need to love us? Is his being dependent upon his love for us. Uh, many of you know my son Dale, um, very rambunctious four-year-old son. Um, right now we uh, we're doing this thing where I, I say, Dale, what's um, 
how much does daddy love you? And he says, you love me a lot. And I'm like, that's right. It's like, well, who loves you more than daddy? And he always says, mama, <laughs> which may be true. Um, um, but I said, no, no, Dale, who loves you more than mama and daddy? He says, well, God does. Yes, that's right. What, how big is God's love? Dad, it's bigger than Sabino Canyon. Like, that's right. He's like, Dad, it's even bigger than the sky. He's like, that's right. It's like, it's even bigger than my box of dinosaur toys. I'm like, okay, well, we're moving backwards a little bit. But you get the point. I said, okay, but Dale, why is God's love so big for you? And he said, just because. Like, well, because why? Dad, just because. And that's right. Just because. Nothing that you and I did. He just loves us. If you know God's love, it's comforting because you, you realize that you don't have to have all the hard things in life figured out. Right? He loves you. He comforts you. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, um, or portion of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matt, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, don't worry about what is coming uh, tomorrow. Don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about you know, what clothes you're going to wear. The Lord provides for you today more so than the birds and the beasts and plants. Because you're made in his image. He loves you. First Peter 5, Peter says, and if you are anxious, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord. Because why? Because he loves you. He cares for you. That's the well that we have to keep drawing out of. But we, when we don't draw out of that well, that becomes very problematic. When we don't like what we experience in life, what we uh, don't like what we see in the world, and what we, what we see and what we experience is, is pain and disillusionment and loss and disease, what you'll try to do is you'll try to figure out life on your own. To try to make it work. Or at least to try to be okay. And that's not going to turn out too well. The, the, the hard thing about this is that sometimes the church is the very institution that can push people towards trying to figure out life on their own. And, and this happens when the, the imperative of Christian piety is preached and when it's taught without the motivating indicative of God's gracious and steadfast love for his people. This can happen in more fundamentalist Christian circles. Um, maybe you've come from that background where it seems like you're just made for heaven or hell, just, in, just a destination, and so this life doesn't matter as much, and so your cares and your hurts don't matter as much. And so you don't actually get to experience the robustness of God's love until He just beams you up out of this place. You feel like you're always pursuing God, just waiting... He's just waiting on you to make the right decision so, so he can decide what to do with you at the end of your life. There's a, a gal named Elizabeth Esther who wrote a memoir not too long ago about coming out of fundamentalist Christianity. And she said this. She says, I want to experience God pursuing me for once. I'm tired of seeking, striving, and not, not knocking on heaven's door. I no longer want to know that silent, capricious, harsh God who would just as soon throw me into the fires of hell as save me. I'm challenging God to pursue me like someone who's never been exposed to the Bible. Love me, God. I dare you. This can happen in our evangelical context and more reformed evangelical Christian circles, too, when we don't draw out of the well of God's gracious and steadfast love. We talk a lot about man's chief end. What is man's chief end? It's to glorify God right, and to enjoy him forever. 
And sometimes the enjoyment of the Lord gets truncated. And when that happens, people can feel like a puppet that just, just gives God glory. You're being used. And people are told God's bringing the world to a close. So just hold on until the clock runs out. But take heart. Cheer up. Because God is going to somehow use all of the difficulties that you face in life for his glory. And that's true, right? That's very biblical. That's true. But it still can feel like this life doesn't matter as much. And so my hurts, my pains, my losses don't matter as much. I've got a friend of mine who just this week, she wrote an article about leaving Reformed Evangelical Christianity just in the past couple of months. And, and she said this, she said, I could no longer, after experience 20 years of just uh, hardships and difficulties in life, and including divorce, she said, I could no longer support a God who saw me as a cog in a sovereign machine who would only save me for the next life and was okay to let me hang on by a thread throughout this one. If that was somehow more glorifying to him. I can no longer try to trust that God or call him good. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. It doesn't matter who you have fashioned God to be in your mind. Or who you want him to be. He is who he is without change. And who is he? He's a God who is gracious. Who is merciful. Who has steadfast love for sheep. How deep is his love? Isaiah 53 speaks of this. Talking about the Messiah that was to come. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. How deep is the love of God? So deep that the shepherd became one of the sheep. The Lord of the universe became the lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ came to this earth, became like you and me, became like one of us, was tempted like us, hurt like us, bled like us, and was crucified. He died and was buried so that sin may be defeated, so that death may be defeated. And he was raised to life so that you and I, even right now, would experience the life that God has designed us to live. That's a life that is with him in perfect righteousness. So guess what? That means the Lord cares about your cares. He cares about your life, and this life matters. We ask the question, well, why, why do we still face so much affliction? Why do we face difficulty and hardship and heartache? And that's a very hard question to answer. Um, there are some rote theological answers that we could give that maybe don't sound that comforting in, in the moment. <laughs> But it's hard to answer that question. But here's what we do know. It's not because God lacks love and care for you. Because Jesus died for you and he was raised to life for you. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, he said, The cross is the final liberation of God's healing love. We have to start with God's love and we have to stay with God's love. And keep drawing out of that well because the gospel brings this freshness, this newness to our difficult lives that, that refreshes us with the hope of 
of the, the life of Christ, resurrection life, that comforts us when we're struggling with sickness or when we're struggling with sin. One said this, he said, believing the gospel means having your imagination taken captive and reshaped by a new story. Look, if your imagination has not been taken captive and reshaped by the gospel, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus for you, then suffering and disease and difficulty is not going to make sense and it's going to be hopeless. And what happens? We'll just try to end up figuring out life on our own. And we're going to be like Solomon who cried, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We can't make sense of it. But God's love is steadfast. It's steadfast for us. It's gracious. It's present. And it's, it's secure. Because Jesus, who was our good shepherd that we read about in John chapter 10, he says, when you're in my hand, I will not let you go. That leads us to our second point, the presence of his hand. Uh, Do you trust God when he says he's going to comfort you? Do you trust him? There was a a man, Japanese man named Hiru Anoda, who was a lieutenant in the the Japanese army in World War II. He was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines in 1944 at the end of the war. And he was told, do whatever you can to not give up, to not surrender to the enemy, uh, to try to thwart them. Whatever it takes. So they resulted to guerrilla warfare, he and his men. So they, they burned the pier. They burned boats. They, um, they lit the harbor on fire. They blew up the airstrip. They burned rice fields. And then a year later, in 1945, uh, of course, the war was over. And uh, the Japanese government dropped these leaflets, these messages, uh, onto Lubang Island that says, Rest. The war is over. Lay down your weapons. And Hiru Inoda didn't trust the messages. He told his men, burn them, they're lying. And then the next year came, and they were still fighting. And they dropped more messages, and he said, burn them, I don't trust them. 1949, they dropped some more messages, they were still fighting. He said, I don't trust them, let's burn them. Finally, in 1974, a man named Norio Suzuki went looking for three things. He went looking for Lieutenant Inoda. A wild panda and the abominable snowman in that order. And four days into his journey into, into Lubang Island, he found Hiru Anoda. Hiru Anoda could never trust the messages from the sky. But he finally laid down his weapons when someone showed up and said, You can rest. When, when you look for a source of comfort, uh, there's a sense of trust that you place in that source of comfort, right? And typically that, that trust is whether they're going to stick with you, whether they're going to stay with you. If you're in the hospital and you're in pain, you expect nurses and doctors to come to your aid and to relieve your pain, to comfort you, right? If you're having surgery, um, like heart surgery, heart transplant, you're going to expect um, the perfusionist uh, to keep running the heart-lung machine. You're going to expect the, the surgeons not to just leave you open on the operating room floor uh, with no one there for an hour and a half while they go take you know, a lunch break. Right? They're going to be present with you. This is what gives you comfort. But when you're hurting, or maybe when you're struggling with, with sin, you're wrestling with sin, Sometimes it can feel like God's comfort are just messages dropped from the sky. 
And this especially happens when, when people come near you and they come alongside you. And on top of adding, uh, uh, giving you a, a lot of unsolicited, unhelpful advice, they start offering what they think are words of comfort. And we do this. We try to offer words of comfort. But how it, how it lands with them sounds purely sentimental. We don't need sentimentality when we're hurting. We need real strong comfort because we are real people that live in a real world with real hurts in real time. The valley of the shadow of death that that David talks about is real. It's a deep, dark ravine where light escapes, where, where the path is rocky, where danger lurks, where you feel like death is around every corner. I was speaking with someone in the past couple weeks um, back in Memphis who had recently gone through uh, a really deep, dark valley of depression and severe anxiety. And they said, I would have rather had my leg cut off, both of my legs cut off, than continue to go through that. It felt like I was in a pit so deep and dark that anything lower, anything darker could have been hell. And it felt like God had abandoned me. The world got dark. If you're in a room with with children um, and you turn off the lights and it's pitch black, what starts happening? The children start screaming, right? What do they scream? Daddy, where are you? Mama, where are you? I can't find you. I can't see you. This is what we do. Everything is not always awesome. There's a, a Christian counselor named... Uh, David Powelson, he said, for those whose world has grown dark, there should be an anti-Psalm 23. He writes this. He says, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm all alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling, into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. David, as he is writing this psalm, he knows that not everything is awesome. He knows all too well the struggle with pain and loss and sin that is oh so real. But here is what is also even more real. God's comfort and is present with you. Even when the world grows dark, 
The idea that David is trying to get across is that the Lord comes to him when he is wanting and he provides in abundance. When you don't feel safe, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, the Lord leads you to places where there's abundant food and drink and rest. So is the Lord going to come to your aid? Because you need a hero. I need a hero. You know, there's been a resurfacing of um, mythic storytelling in pop culture in recent years, like with Marvel and DC comic books coming to the, the big screen and Lord of the Rings and, and Harry Potter. Uh, a few months ago, a New York Times writer David Brooks uh, wrote an article about the, the rise of mythic storytelling um, and, uh, and why that, that has come to be. But he also talks about the need for parables. He says this, he said, myths respond to our hunger for something heroic. They're set in a timeless, perilous realm. And that perilous realm usually uh, has rules that don't follow our normal world, where uh, characters and creatures have superpowers like flying and, and throwing fire and bolts of lightning. Uh, but the core drama is primarily external, where you are uh, facing... Uh, forces of evil and darkness and enduring a harsh journey like Lord of the Rings. But in parables, the core drama is internal. It's facing fear and loneliness and anger and other sins. Parables are set in reality, in normal time. This is why Jesus uses them, because they're comparable to our life. It has people just like you and me who have shared commitments, shared struggles. Brooks says, myths tend to celebrate grandeur and heroic superiority. Parables tend to puncture their pretensions of superiority and celebrate humility and service to others. But here's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. Because our hunger for a superhero, for an otherworldly figure who goes beyond what we could imagine... Uh, to save people like us is met in real time and space in the person of Jesus who comes to us in humility and service, who is able to sympathize with us in every single way because he was made like one of us. He's the one who comes and says, I am the good shepherd. You are mine. I will never let you go. Psalm 95 says, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He never lets us go. In the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death, our good shepherd fends off our enemies with his rod and he guides us with his hand. So how do you know God's present with you in the midst of pain and difficulty? Well, pain and hope are not mutually exclusive. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. And look on things as if man were the center of them. But man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too. But we were made that God may love us. That we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. You were made so that God may love you. If you look back even the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve made in God's image so that God may love them, have perfect love draped on their lives by the Lord. And they sin and they rebel against Him. And what happens? God says, Genesis 3, 
chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will make this right for you by my own hand. Why? Because I love you. I love you. It's amazing love. You have to trust that the Lord holds you. I was looking at commentaries for, for Psalm 23, and they said that there's a reason why the shepherd's staff comforts David. Because you want a shepherd with a staff. You don't want him without one, especially in a difficult place like the valley of the shadow of death, because it gives assurance that he is holding on to something and he will not falter. If he falters, you will falter as a sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd who walked in this world just like us. And what did he, what did he hold on to? He held on to the love of his father. If we hold on to the Lord, we will not falter. David, in Psalm 94, he says, When I thought my foot slipped, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Why would the Lord promise us that he would be with us and then not make good on that promise? Why would he say that he would comfort us and then not do it? Why would he say, I'm sending your, my spirit among you, the paraclete, the comforter, just so that the Holy Spirit would lay dormant? What gives you any reason for that to be true? There's no reason. Cattle don't have shepherds. They have cowboys. Right? The Lord is not a cowboy. He's a shepherd. So what does that have to do with anything? Not all people are sheep. Not all people are sheep. In John chapter 10 that we read, Jesus is saying that those that followed me are sheep. And they're sheep because I've gathered them and care for them and will lead them and defend them and will never let them out of my hand. I will even lay down my life for them. David is saying that if you're a sheep, you have a shepherd with you always, even when the lights go out. Even though you're dumb, forgetful, sheepish self forgets that he's always with you. He would never abandon you. Though I walk in darkness, David says, you are with me. That is a reality. It's not a wish. It's reality. But being in the midst of, of difficulty doesn't mean an absence of God. Walk by faith, not by sight. Lewis again talked about suffering. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What is he saying? When the world gets dark, when you can't see the Lord, it's his voice that you have to listen to. Maybe when the world grows dark and you can only hear his voice, he's trying to get your attention. Is his voice enough? His voice, as Psalm 29 says, it breaks the cedars. It makes the deer give birth. It brings life where there was death. It brings life where there was nothing. It calms raging seas. It calms storms. Is his voice enough? If you hear his voice, it means that his hand is near. So practically, what does it mean for us? It means that we have to pray that the Lord would tune our ear to his voice. Say, Lord, okay, you have my attention. Would you teach me what I need to learn? Would you show me what I need to do? Would you show me whom I need to love? That leads us to our last point, just briefly, the presence of his people. 
You're not alone, and you're not meant to be alone. Look at verse 6. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy, loving kindness, will not just follow me. And the Hebrew says, it will pursue me. It will pursue me, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. David is not thinking about the temple, more than likely. It's not even on his radar. Probably not thinking about heaven. He's thinking about the experience of covenantal intimacy with God and with God's people among whom God dwells. How does the Holy Spirit pursue you with his intimate love and comfort? With his word? Yes. With his Holy Spirit? Yes. How else? Through his people. Through his people in covenant community. Through the church. Who who is Psalm 23 written to? It's not written to an individual. It's written to a community. What's the context for its use? It's not primarily used for for private worship. It's for corporate worship. It's written for God's people to be sung, to be prayed in the context of a community as one voice. People who readily engage in corporate, intimate fellowship. My son Dale, just a couple nights ago, as I was telling him goodnight, I turned off the lights and he said, Wait, wait, Dad, I'm scared. Why are you scared? Well, it's dark. I know it's dark. He goes, but I need you here with me. I said, son, I can't be here with you. He said, but dad, I'm still scared. I'm like, well, just remember when daddy's not with you, who's with you? Well, God's with me. Well, there you go. Right? And I shut the door. And he goes, no, no, but dad, I'm still scared. I was like, but God, you know God's with you. He goes, yeah, but no one else is and I need somebody. You know, he's right about that too. We need somebody. You know, when, when you are pursued by someone who is, is living and loving out of God's love. It's, it's the Lord who's per, pursuing you in His love. When a friend who lives and love, loves out of the love of God sits with you when you're weeping and they wrap their arms around you, it's the Lord who weeps with you and wraps His arms around you. When there's another sheep who lives and loves out of the love of the shepherd sees you, and I mean really, truly sees you, in your moment of vulnerability as you experience pain and loss and disillusionment and the struggle with sin and hard relationships and a hard marriage. It's the Lord who sees you. When you're lonely and there's a friend who lives and loves out of God's love and they invite you into their home to laugh and to drink and to eat with you, it's the Lord who eats and drinks and laughs with you. When you're going through dark times and the haze of confusion and sorrow still lingers and you're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? And you go out looking for comfort elsewhere. Folks, remember that the the shepherd is always where he has been. He is with his sheep. And he may have to go out and leave the 99 to go and find you and bring you back. Well, he will bring you back into his sheepfold with other sheep because you can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. We were made for each other. What's the greatest commandment the Lord has given us? Love God. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Your neighbor as yourself. Is the second half of that secondary to the first? No. It's both and. Jesus says, people will know Who abides with you and whose you are by your love for one another? 
We're the aroma of Christ. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're his ambassadors. So who is God sending you to? Maybe today. Maybe this week. In order for you to be an ambassador of his love and comfort. Who is it? I know that when we struggle um, with painful memories from our past or stories, we want them to be erased. Uh, when we struggle with the pain of life as, as it exists now, we want um, the sense of loss. We want maybe sickness and disease to be gone. But please know that your tears are not wasted. The Lord has cried those tears with you. He knows your pain and He is present with you in that. The Lord is our shepherd. He does not leave His sheep in the field to graze. He brings us into His home, into His dwelling place. He invites us as His children to the table where He wraps His arms around us. Where he loves us, where he comforts us, and we can ask him the big, hard questions. Say, Lord, why? We can cry the messy tears. And he comforts us with his love and with his hand. And he comforts us with the presence of other children, just like you and me, that are in the thick of this difficult life together, but looking to the Lord for comfort. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are the great comforter. Lord, thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit that would remind us in your word and remind us just throughout every day and through through ordinary relationships with your people that you are present with us, that you love us, that you will not let us go. Lord, would you give us a new faith? Would you incite a deeper sense of trust within us that you do love us, that you do care for us, that you are with us even when we can't see you? Lord, when our world grows dark, would we learn what you are trying to tell us? Would we grow in knowledge and love for you and your word and your people and those that are not your people? That they may taste and see that you are good and you are present. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.